This morning's sermon is about incarnation again, but it's about preparation and getting ready. Now, if you were to look at the high holy calendar, you would discover that this week for a lot of churches is involved with joy, joy. But before I get to joy, I need to talk about UVA football again. Last week, we were elated, to say the least. This week, oh boy. What I did this morning, because I actually fell asleep before the game was over, full confession, I guess that has something to do with age. I got up this morning and I asked Siri what the final score was. I, had no, I knew that we had lost, and Siri told me this. UVA was trounced by Clemson. That seemed odd, so I asked her again. And she said, UVA was soundly defeated by Clemson. So I asked her again, and she said, UVA was definitively defeated. Then she said, UVA was crushed. I literally kept saying, Siri, can you please, Siri, by the way, as voice command on an iPhone. And the last time I asked her, Siri, what was the score of UVA against Clemson? She said this, couldn't believe it, Clemson subjugated <laughs> UVA. I just, wow, I couldn't believe it. I really didn't know what subjugated meant, truthfully, so I, I looked it up, and it means to bring under complete control or subjection, to conquer, to master, sub, to subdue, to make submissive or subservient. That's what it actually means. And now I know that Siri is really the voice of the devil. That's what I've determined. So not only did that happen last night, but last night in my own home, let me back up a little bit. For this week, we've had a sickness that's hit a family member in my home that was actually quite serious. And in the midst of that, last night, our dog, we have two dogs. We have a large dog, and then we have a partial dog. <laughs> a partial dog is a dog that would lose a fight to a house cat. <laughs> if a dog can't beat a house cat, it's a partial dog in my book. We have one of both. And our partial dog got sick. And so from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m., she was running around the house, and I don't want to explain what happened, but it required immediate action multiple times. You ever lay in bed as a husband, and you don't move, and you keep looking at your wife? Just hold. I did that. She never woke up once, not one time. Franny slept through the entire ordeal. And so I was up again multiple times cleaning up after this dog and wondering why I had ever bought her 14 years ago. Just kidding. But she's still a partial dog. <laughs> but those are first world problems. UVA losing, a house dog that's not well. That's first world problems. What we find as we move forward into this morning's sermon, which is about incarnation, preparation, getting ready for the birth of Christ into the world or the ushering of the incarnate Christ into this world. 
what we discover is what we face in Scripture is anything but first world problems. These are third world problems. If you were to read the High Holy Church calendar for Advent, and I've been doing that in preparation for Christmas and these sermons, you would discover that in the High Church calendar and in the liturgical calendar of many of the denominations that this morning the call is to read on John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist prepares people for Christ. So that's what I want to do. This is about incarnation, preparation, and getting ready. As we read in the text, we pick up our reading in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 tell us this. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken about through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. What many of us might not know is that when the book of Matthew is written and shows up, that for 400 years there's been what we call radio silence from any prophetic word from God from the Older to the Newer Testament. 400 years of silence. It's called the intertestamental period. And during that time there's total silence but when we pick up Israel again in the book of Matthew, she is subjugated by the Roman Empire. She's being used and abused. And all of a sudden we find here's Israel in this tragic, tragic place. Not of nowhere a voice begins to speak for God. His name is John the Baptist. He comes in the guise or in the likeness of an Old Testament prophet. And he begins to preach about Israel getting right with God and preparing the way for the Lord. What all of the Gospels tell us about John the Baptist is that the prophet Isaiah had announced that he would come, that John the Baptist would come, never giving us his name, but painting a portrait of him. And every Gospel writer claims that passage that we just read in verse number 3, that the prophet Isaiah announced that there would be one who would come, and he'd be a voice in the wilderness and he would prepare the way of the Lord. What's amazing is the book of Isaiah is the most quoted book in the Newer Testament. And especially when we look at Christmas, 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and makes these incredible announcements, not just about the birth of Jesus, but his death as well. Actually, in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 23, Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah 7:14 and tells us this: The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, 
and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We'll be going over that passage on Christmas Eve. But what's amazing to me is that when John the Baptist is presented, when he's presented to us in all four Gospels, he's a unique character. But the Gospel of Matthew tells us what he is wearing. I doubt he would grace the cover of GQ magazine. He's wearing camel's hair, and he eats weird food. And I've often thought, what does that actually mean? Well, there are people who bring meaning to it. But what I felt like God put in my heart was this, that John was his own person and cultural pressure and the ways of the culture making people be and do certain things. John, because of his passion for God, was immune to all of that. John was God's man. Now what it tells us in the scripture is that the prophet Isaiah says that he would come as a forerunner for God. Why? Because if God shows up, there's always a prophet that announces first. And if Jesus is the incarnation of God, and he is, and he was, then there needed to be a prophet to announce his arrival. And that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a unique guy. He not only preaches about who Jesus is and every fiber of his being prepares the way for Christ to be revealed in the world, but he also points his bony prophetic finger in the face of the Roman ruler and he loses his head. But scripture tells us, it's amazing, John is dressed very weirdly. Where he's preaching is a weird place, it's in the wilderness. You would think that God's prophet would be in Jerusalem, but he's not. God's prophet preparing the way for the Lord is in the wilderness. He's in the wrong place, and he's dressed weirdly. And yet people, according to verses 5 and 6 of what we just read, people are pouring out of Jerusalem and all Judea and the entire region of the Jordan, and they're going to John, and they're confessing their sin. And they are being baptized in the Jordan River as a sign of their confession. Ultimately, they are confessing their sins. They're getting ready for God. What about us? As we move towards Christmas, are our hearts open to what God would show us that we need to confess to Him? Time has not changed that a heart that's prepared is a heart that has confessed its sin. But what's amazing is when we confess our sins, and I can't for the life of me figure out how this works, but the Bible calls us to do it when we confess our sins to God and at times confess our sins to each other, there is a divine transaction that takes place where utter, total peace and joy returns to the life. How do I know? I've done it. And I've experienced the power of confession. Not only is John the Baptist brought to us in the Gospel of Matthew, but he's also brought to us in the Gospel of Luke. 
I want to read about John again because in the High Holy Church calendar, we are called to read these two readings. And I want to read the second one as well. It's Luke 3, 1 through 6. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Euturia, and Traconus, and Lysint, whatever, tetrarch of Abilene. Isn't it amazing? And we're so grateful that certain names have just left the human race, and there's a couple of them. And during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the next phrase is stunning. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. All people will see God's salvation. I love how the prophet Isaiah says that there will be one who will show up and when that person shows up, the valleys will be filled in, crooked roads will be made straight, and people will have a clear, unobstructed view of who God is. That's powerful. That's extremely powerful. But as we look at this, what we discover is the first part of that paragraph brings to us people who were in power at the time of John the Baptist. One biblical historian writes this about all the people named other than John. Here's what this biblical historian writes. She writes this. The opening verses of the chapter tell us the names of some who were rulers and governors in the earth when the ministry of John the Baptist began. It is a melancholy list and full of instruction. There is hardly a name in it which is not infamous for wickedness, cruelty, debauchery, and selfishness. Tiberius and Pontius Pilate and Herod and his brother and Annas and Caiaphas were men of whom little is known except for how evil they were. The earth seemed given into the hands of the wicked. When such, such were the rulers, what must the people have been, she writes. As you look at the introduction of John the Baptist, it tells us that there are certain people leading when the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. Two of them in particular are noteworthy. One is Annas. Annas was appointed as the high priest over all the people of Jerusalem in AD 6. He was appointed by Quirinius, the governor of Syria, a wicked ruler. He had no business being the high priest. When Jesus was arrested, Jesus was taken in front of him for his first 
mock trial. And after Pentecost, Annas led the other priests in questioning the Apostle Peter and the other church leaders. And it's apparent those he is the one that sanctioned the persecution of the first and early church. Then there's Caiaphas, another name that's listed. Caiaphas, at the time where we see John the Baptist, is actually now the high priest. He is the high priest at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, and he was the son-in-law of Annas, and a leader in the plot to have Jesus arrested and persecuted and executed. He sat as the high priest over the second illegal nighttime trial of Jesus. And then he officiated over the trial of Peter and John in the book of Acts. And again, he too sanctioned the beginning of the persecution of the early church. Needless to say, if you were Jewish at this time, when John the Baptist begins his public ministry, you would have discovered that if you had put your hope in politics, you had lost all hope. If you put your hope in religion, you had lost all hope because religion and politics were one and the same thing in ancient Israel. They're one and the same thing. And all, most all of the religious leaders had sold themselves out to the Roman Empire. The religious leaders were all about political strategy, getting wealthy, corruption, and selfishness. Needless to say, the people, God's people, those people who were the people of Israel had been subjugated by the Roman Empire and their leaders. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist shows up. Is it any wonder that people began to pour out into the wilderness to hear him preach? John was the voice of God. His voice was being used to prepare the way for the Lord. The scripture tells us clearly, right underneath the heading of all of those powerful people, there's one tiny glimmer of hope. And again, the sentence tells us this, that in the wilderness, the word of the Lord came to John. He was an absolute nobody. But when God's word came to him, he began to preach and he began to prepare a people. Now as I was thinking about that sentence, that phrase, and the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness, it struck me that I need to take some time and talk about this for all of us. Here's why. Some of your Bibles, instead of it saying wilderness, It says desert. John was in the desert, and the word of the Lord came to him. Now, for anyone who read that in the first century, they knew exactly what was being said. We miss it now. What was being said was this, is that John was in the wilderness. He was in the desert Because that's where God prepares his true leaders. Almost all true leaders in scripture have a desert experience. 
If God's actually going to use this person, they must go through the wilderness. And if you look in the Older Testament, you'll find that this is true. You've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've got the shepherd king, King David, who spent time in the desert, in the wilderness. You've got Moses. Moses who tried to do something about the injustice of Israel under Egypt. He took it into his own hands and he murdered someone. And then... God sends them to the backside of the wilderness, to the backside of the desert, and God works on him for decades and decades to get him ready to lead his people. You see, the desert in Scripture is the crucible where God prepares anyone he's going to use. If God is going to use your life, if he's going to use my life, there will be a time in which we find ourselves in the wilderness, in the desert. It's dry. It's harsh. It's alone. When you look at what happens in the desert, and don't forget that Jesus himself spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert being tempted by the enemy of our soul. The desert and the wilderness are essential. Jesus was there. He was alone. Now listen. I know that some of us are in the desert now. I know that some of us have just come out of a wilderness experience. And some of us will be heading into it. I want you to recognize that God uses the desert and the wilderness to refine us to prepare us, and to make us into what he wants us to be. I want us to catch this. Because if Jesus went through it, and the leaders of the Older Testament went through it, and John the Baptist is going through it, we will too. But you see in the wilderness, in the desert, especially if we look at Israel and their 40 years of being in the desert, what you will discover is the only way to make it is to fully put your trust in God. There's no other way. I've been there myself. I remember the first time I ever went through a wilderness experience. I remember it clearly. I was in college. I know it's hard to believe, but I was an athlete in college, and I played soccer. And in the midst of training, I blew out my left knee totally blew it out. I had never been severely injured in sports before. I remember sitting in my college bed. I was looking at my knee. It was swollen up like a cantaloupe. And I looked down and the pain was absolutely throbbing. And I remember laying there in college looking at my knee. And for the first time, my body had failed me. For the first time. I'd never experienced that before. And I remember over the next several months how God slowly got a hold of my life. Because for the first time, I had to honestly face the fact that I was not physically invincible. Now, all of you could have looked at me and said, Pete, you were not physically invincible. You just didn't know it. But I had felt invincible, but not anymore. Oh, by the way, as a side note, two of my three children 
have also had to have their knee rebuilt. And I have been blamed for the genetic strain that has brought that into their lives. But I remember that clearly. Remember being there. I was in physical pain. I was in emotional pain. You might even maybe call it hedging and moving towards depression. But here's what I know. I would have never signed up for that moment. But here I was with the call of God on my life, moving towards ministry. And some of us that are sitting here are going to be called into pastoral ministry. I know it's true. But what I can say to you is, is that it was during that time where God worked uniquely on my life. What I had thought I could trust in, I had finally learned that I couldn't. And I have watched over the years as literally hundreds of people have stepped into the desert. And when they've stepped into the desert and into the wilderness, they have discovered that what they thought they could do in their own strength, they desperately needed God. I would not trade my desert experience for anything. For anything. I wouldn't have signed up for it but I'm glad it's on my resume. And that's how it is with everyone who's ever been in the desert. But you see, the challenge is this. You can behave like Israel did at times, where you can stick your fist up towards God in the midst of the desert. You can curse God. You can blame God. You can do all of those things. Or you can humble yourself and learn how to trust Him at a level that can be learned no other way. And this may be hard to believe. You don't have to go to the desert physically to be in the desert. It can happen in the beauty of Charlottesville. I don't really care for the desert much. I'm, how many of you like green mountains? How many of you like brown, ugly, arid, completely void of any life kind of brown mountains? Yeah, there you go. I remember the experience I had in the desert. When I was in grad school, I met my wife and uh, decided that Fran and I would take a vacation. We wanted someone to go with us, so we went to Texas to pick up my brother, Scott. He was living in Texas. And when we got there, he said, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's go into Mexico. Okay, sounds good, and he's a fun-loving guy, and so the three of us got in Fran's car. She had a VW Beetle, and it was white with white interior, and it was a rag top. It's not why I dated her, but it didn't hurt either, so that amazing car. But anyways, we're driving. That was supposed to be funny. It didn't go over well, but anyway, um, so we're driving, and we're 15 miles outside of Laredo, Texas. And all of a sudden, all the compression in the engine goes away, and the car just slowly coasts to a stop. Well, it wouldn't start. Nothing was working, so we sat in the desert. And here's the reality of it. I was standing there on the edge of the road. We're literally in the middle of the desert, and every time a car would come by, they would slow down. They would see me, Fran, and my brother, Scott, and they would speed up and leave us. We sat out there for a few hours. It's a true story. And as we were sitting there, all of a sudden, this kind of a, it was a Datsun pickup truck. And on the back was a trailer, and it pulled by us, and then it pulled over, and a guy came out, and he said, what do you need? 
And I said, well, I don't really know, but there's no compression. He said, pop open the back. So he did. And he looked at it and he said, oh, I know exactly what happened. You blew out the master cylinder. And he said, here's what we're going to do. He said, I'm going to follow you and I've got a case of oil. And every time the compression leaves the engine, I want you to stop. I'll run over, open the back, pour in another few quarts of oil, and we'll keep going. So literally, this guy followed us in the desert for 15 miles until we got to Laredo, Texas. That was the border town with which we were going to access Mexico. So we get there. The guy looks at me. He goes, look. He said, this isn't a very good town. You need to stay with the VW. And we pulled into a garage, and he had helped us find one that would repair it. And he said, you need to stay with the VW, because if you leave it, it's probably not going to be here when you get back. And so you stay with the car. He said, I'll take your brother, and I'll take your girlfriend, and we'll go to the airport, and we'll pick up a rental car, and then they'll come back. I said, that sounds awesome. So I sat in the car. One hour passed. Two hours passed. Three hours passed. Four hours passed. This is no seven hours, eight hours, nothing. Well, by now I'm freaking out. And so I go to the guy who's running the gas station. He speaks no English. The other guy had to interpret everything. And I looked at him and I said, you know, girlfriend, brother, eight hours gone. Here's what he said to me. Very bad. Very bad. Call policia, call policia. Border, border, border. I'm like, oh my gosh. And here's what you don't know, is I'm dating Fran, but her dad is an Italian businessman. I'm not going to divulge, but he was an Italian businessman. And I thought about calling up and saying, hey, um, don't know how to tell you this, but Fran's gone. She's gone. No, I don't know. No, I let her get in the truck with a dude I didn't know and my brother, and she's gone. That's all I know. I sat there for 10 hours, and the sun had already set when they came back. I hate the desert. Hate it with a passion. I don't know how you would take this. I prayed more in those 10 hours than I've ever prayed in my life. I was speaking in tongues, I was quoting scripture, I was praying, I was calling down heaven, I was rebuking Satan, I was doing everything I could think of. And when I saw Fran drive back in, she came bouncing out of the car. She said, we had fun. <laughs> I don't know if you can get divorced from your girlfriend, but I really wanted to. I said, where were you? She said, Pete, it was amazing. This guy, he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. The trailer behind that Datsun pickup truck was filled with car parts from broken down cars out in the bush. And this guy and his wife would make a tour. He lived in Chicago. And he would make a tour and pick up all the broken down car parts. And he would take them back to Chicago and fix them all. And then he would return every couple of months and deliver them to the people because they couldn't afford new car parts. And he used Fran and my brother as free labor to hand out all that stuff. I hate the desert. I'm never going to get over this, ever. But here's the point. Is that when you're in the desert and the word of the Lord comes to you there, it does something to your life.
It transforms you. It does something unique. And the Bible tells us that in the face of all of the political corruption and all of the religious corruption and the people are being subjugated by their own leaders and by the Roman Empire, there's one little glimmer of hope and it's this. And the word of the Lord came to John while he was in the wilderness. And every Jewish person knows that is the beginning of hope. That is the beginning of a future. That is how God works. So as we think about putting feet to our faith, as we think about preparing the way for the Lord, as we look at John the Baptist and say, okay, what do I need to do? How do I need to get my heart ready? Well, obviously, it begins with confession. It begins with repentance. Can you imagine Christmas morning where we gather around the reality of Jesus with our families and our friends? Or maybe here at City on Christmas Eve as we gather together to celebrate again the birth of Jesus. The question has to be, will we be ready to receive him? Will we have made the way for the Lord because we've confessed and we've repented? But here's another thing. Would we be a group of people who would be willing to accept the wilderness and the desert is from God, knowing that it's there that God works on us and refines us. It's in the desert where we come to the end of ourselves and God begins. The desert proves what you've trusted in that is not trustworthy. And ultimately, if we are like all of the people we've mentioned, including Jesus and now John the Baptist, that when you exit the desert in the wilderness, you truly have found what it means to trust God and to trust Jesus and to truly have our hearts completely open to him. Would you please stand with me as we close out our time? I'm going to ask that as the worship team leads us that we would close our eyes in God's presence. If you, you are comfortable doing this, that you would physically kind of put your hands out in front of you as a sign of your surrender and your receptivity to God. Picture as you do that you're holding everything that you are to the Lord and saying, here it is. God, it's all yours. You take with it what you will. But let me be a woman. Let me be a man who is prepared for the coming of the Christ child. That I would not miss what God has for me this Christmas season.